We have been looking at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and it's been, I think, kind of a hard study, honestly. Uh, Some of this, uh, the sword of the Spirit is a little pointy on the end, and it jabs on us a little bit, and uh, that's good. Uh, It ought to. Um, In fact, uh, Jesus presents a standard in the Sermon on the Mount that we cannot possibly live up to. In fact, he concludes chapter 5 with these words, You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Okay. Uh, all right, glad we understand each other, right? Uh, and I, I, was, I was studying this week, uh, the last part of chapter 5 that we're going to go over today, and, and as I'm in my study and as I pray and look at the text over the course of the week, you know, I'm, I'm feeling, like I say, the sword of the Spirit poking me, as, it, as I'm sure he pokes some of you as you look at these same verses. And I ran across this story that I found really encouraging, and I, I want to share it with you because I think you may find it encouraging too. There was a, uh, one, of the, one of the great pastors of the Scottish uh, Free Church in the 1800s, there was a guy named Alexander White. And when Alexander White was a boy, uh, he was injured in one of his arms, and he nearly lost the arm. His parents were going to take him to the hospital and have his arm amputated. You know, back in those days, there wasn't a lot of times a lot you could do. Uh, but his neighbor, a lady, said, well, I will take the boy into my house, and I will nurse him, and I will do whatever it takes to be able to save that arm. And, uh, in fact, she was able to nurse him back to full health, and his arm was saved. But the healing process was very, very painful. And being a little boy, he was not shy about letting his nurse know when it was ouchy. And she would say to him in response, I like the pain. I like the pain. And first he thought, I think he had, like, Kathy Bates as his nurse. (laughs) Okay, <laughs> but remember that movie? Yeah, <laughs> okay, uh, nursing him back to health and causing him great pain. But in any case, she, he said well, one day, he finally asked her, why is it whenever I tell you how much this hurts, you tell me how much you like the pain I'm in? And she said, because that means that you still have feeling in that arm. And if you're having pain, it means that your arm is not dead but alive. And as White relayed the story later, as he became a pastor, he said, you know, sometimes the Spirit of God is at work in our life with His Word, and He's poking on us. And we need to learn to say, I like the pain. I like the pain. Because it means that we are not dead, we are alive. And that we still have feeling in that spot where God is poking us. Amen? It means we are healing, not dying. That's good. It's a good thing. So, with that as a word of encouragement, I want to jump into chapter 5 and verse 38 because um, we're going to have to like the pain a little today. All right? You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. 
And if anyone would sue you to take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, if you've been here at Chillicothe Bible Church for any length of time, you know that I like movies. I like good movies. One of the movies that I like probably more than I should is the movie The Untouchables. Remember this? John Connery, Kevin Costner going against Al Capone, 1930s Chicago. They're going to take down the mob. I love it. It's great. Where's Needy? He's in the car. All right. Um, those of you who've seen the movie know the reference, right? But initially, you've got this story. You've got Elliot Ness, small group of cops. They're going to take down the mob. And initially, Ness doesn't have any success at all. And he meets this Irish cop named Malone, John Connery, right? And I can't do it justice, but there's this great scene where they kind of have a discussion about how they're going to do it. If you've seen the movie, you remember this. You said you wanted to get Capone. Do you really want to get him? You see, what I'm saying is, what are you prepared to do? I'll do anything within the law. And then... What are you prepared to do? If you open the can on these worms, you've got to be prepared to go all the way because they're not going to give up the fight until one of you is dead. I want to get Capone. I don't know how to do it. You want to get Capone? Here's how you do it. They pull a knife. You pull a gun. He sends one of yours to the hospital. You send one of his to the morgue. That's the Chicago way. And that's how you get Capone. Are you going to do that? Are you ready to do that? Well, that might make for compelling cinema, but it makes for a lousy society. Amen? <laughs> that you have this escalation that moves, you know, ratcheting up. Uh, any of you all ever been involved in a war uh, with pranks? You know, UTP their house. They put 8,000 forks in your front yard. You know, the, you saran wrap their car, they saran wrap your house. You know, these kinds of things, right? What happens? It always escalates, right? And into that, God gave the, the Mosaic Law. You know, the ancient world was one of blood feuds, like the Hatfields and McCoys, or like Ness of the Untouchables versus Capone and the mob, where it's an escalating, ratcheting up fight. Because you never felt that you ever got square. Well, what they did to me was bad, so I'm going to not just get even, I'm going to get even and then some. And into that, God gave the law to the people of Israel, and He said, He gave them what became known as the lex talionis, the law of retaliation. In other words, you can legally demand up to the same level of injury as has been done to you. But you cannot go beyond that. And on top of that, what the Mosaic Law did was it took law enforcement out of the hands of clan and family and individual and put it in the hands of a centralized government and said, no, you will not administer justice. But the authorities will administer justice. And they may take up to eye for eye and tooth for tooth. Now, in fact, in Israel, they never actually 
you know, if you blinded somebody, they never, you know, took a knife and cut out your eye. If you knocked out somebody's tooth, they didn't get pliers and pull out one of yours. That wasn't how it worked. But the principle was that the punishment had to fit the crime. That you could not exceed in, in, uh, in retaliation or in recompense of a crime committed the penalty that was given to you. And this was a revolutionary thing. In fact, this is the basis for all modern law enforcement. If you want to have justice, you have to have the punishment fit the crime that has occurred. But in spite of all that, Jesus calls his followers to a different standard. Not to the Chicago way, but to Jesus' way. And Jesus' way looks an entirely different approach. It's a response based not on justice, but on another principle called grace. Not on retaliation, but on mercy. And so, verse 39, he, he gives the principle, he says, Do not resist the one who is evil. And then he's going to give us four examples of how that general principle, do not resist the one who is evil, plays out in personal relationships. He gives four examples. The first one deals with insults. Jesus says, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, this is not, this is not, uh, I think a lot of folks misunderstand this, this statement by Jesus. They think that if you are under attack, that you cannot defend yourself. There are people who take that kind of pacifistic understanding of this, but that's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about insults. It's a right-handed world. So how do you hit someone on the right cheek? You're a right-handed person. Like that. It's a backhanded slap. It's a deliberate insult. Um, the Jews held that, that an open palm slap was less insulting than the backhand. Because the backhand was dismissive. It was like, you're not even worth hitting with my fist. I'm just going to slap you across the face backhanded. And so Jesus says, you turn the other cheek. Somebody deliberately insults you. Someone even gives you a backhanded slap. And you turn the other cheek. Our world says, don't dish it out if you can't take it in return. Jesus says, if someone dishes it out, you don't dish it back. Anybody feeling poked yet? I am. The next example he gives is lawsuits. Uh, in those days, somebody could literally sue you to take the shirt off of your back. And we have protections on that now. You know, there's a certain level, even when you declare bankruptcy, a certain level of stuff you're allowed to keep even though you're bankrupt. But in those days, the law allowed you to sue somebody to literally take the shirt off their back. 
And if you were a very poor person, you would have two articles of clothing. This is what Jesus had. He had a tunic, which is kind of a long-sleeved robe, you know, almost like a nightgown-looking thing that everybody wore. And then over that, you wore a cloak, which doubled, if you were a poor person, as both your outer garment as well as your blanket that you slept in at night. And under the Mosaic Law, if you, you could give your cloak, which was kind of the last possession you would give up if you were a poor person, because it's what you have to sleep in. Um, but that you, you could put your cloak up as collateral with the bank or with another person as a guarantee on the loan. But under the law, you couldn't give it to somebody as a permanent possession. They had to, you, could, you had to give it to them during the day, and then you had to go back at night and get it from them, so you had something to sleep in, and the, the lender was not allowed to take it from you permanently. But Jesus says, somebody sh- literally sues you to take the shirt off your back, give it to them, and give them your cloak also. Do more than what they're expecting. Next example is forced labor. I try to imagine this. We don't live in a society like this, but in in Jewish society, because they were ruled by the Romans, what the Romans could do was they could uh, conscript you into forced labor for any reason at any time. And they could force you to carry something for them, carry a load for them, up to one mile you could go. Uh, you may remember that when Jesus was crucified, uh, Jesus, you know, the, a lot of the artwork that you see depicted, uh, they depict Jesus carrying the whole cross. That's not what happened. What you would carry as a condemned man was the cross beam that your hands were fastened to. But Jesus, as you remember, was beaten very se- severely prior to his crucifixion. He's already suffering from a lot of blood loss, and he can't carry the crossbeam all the way to the place of crucifixion. So the Roman soldier who's about to execute him grabs a guy out of the crowd, a guy named Simon of Cyrene. He says, here, you carry his cross. And they could do that. And every Jew hated that. Hated that. Because it was a symbol and a sign of the fact that they were an oppressed people who were ruled by a foreign power that was hostile to them. But nevertheless, they could grab anybody they wanted at any time and say, here, I'm tired of carrying this. You carry it. And they could make you carry it for a mile. And then after a mile, you were allowed to set it down. But Jesus says, if someone forces you to go one mile, you go with them too. You do more than the law requires. And then he addresses borrowers. Um, You ever run into these people? People who are always needing something from you? They're borrowing something at whatever time, whether it's massively inconvenient for you or not, and their borrowing becomes much more than annoying. Uh, They're the people that you are in your life who are never giving you anything, but who are always taking something of yours. You know, maybe they borrowed your chainsaw, and when it came back, it's broke. (laughs) You go, 
what's wrong with my chainsaw? I don't know. It was like that when I got it. You know, and it's like, well, it worked when I gave it to you, you know. Well, the Jesus addresses that kind of a situation where someone just continually borrows from you and is abusing you in their borrowing. Um, the person who seems like they go through life with a giant vacuum hose coming out of their body, just sucking whatever they can get from everybody that they're interacting with. What, you know what Jesus says? How to respond to those people? Give it to them. Give it to them. Do not refuse anyone who would borrow from them, from you. Jesus says we're not called to be penny-pinching tightwads, but to be freely giving to other people what God has freely given to us. Now, as you look at these examples... I think Jesus has in mind a reason that he's giving that's not stated, but nevertheless, I think it's there. Because, you know what, if you, what will happen if you start responding this way to people who treat you like this? If you start responding in grace and in mercy to people who are mistreating you, you're going to all of a sudden have opportunities for the gospel. I mean, imagine, you know, somebody pulls you out of a crowd, you're just minding your own business, and pulls you out of a crowd and says, hey, I don't want to carry this grain sack anymore. The law says you have to carry it for me one mile. And you go, okay, that's fine. I'll go two. How about that? You got two miles. You got 30 minutes. Think you might have anything to talk about with that guy? <laughs> Man, you are a weirdo. What's wrong with you? <laughs> well, let me tell you about it. <laughs> Heaven is a free gift. <laughs> right? Some of you are in EE, and you can't earn your way there. Because of what the Bible says about you, and what the Bible says about God, and about how Jesus Christ came into the world to save you and me from sin. And you can receive that gift by faith. Would you like to do that right now where we're walking? Right? All of a sudden, you've created an opportunity to tell this person about who it is you're following. Man, I'm always borrowing from you, and you never ask anything in return. Why is that? That's weird. Because I love Jesus, and He transformed my life. Man, I sued you, and I took advantage of you. I took the shirt off your back, and when I took your last thing that you owned, you gave me the other thing that you owned. That's weird. People don't do that. How come you did that? Because I am a follower of Jesus Christ and He transformed my heart and my life does not consist in the abundance of my possessions. Amen? And therefore, I can respond like that because what I own has nothing to do with the meaning and purpose and significance and value of my life. And I can hold what I own with an open hand because it's not mine to start with. It belongs to God who gave it to me. And if you want to take it all away, I'll take it up with Him. I'll say, Lord, someone took your cloak. <laughs> I sure do need another one because <laughs> it's cold at night. But someone took what belonged to you. And this guy needs Jesus. And I'm going to respond to him in grace as you 
have responded to me. Because, you know, that's the other point that I think Jesus is making. You know why you need to respond this way? Because this is how God responds to us. That there are, we are naturally, normally the people who are always demanding of God and never giving anything in return. We are the evil person whom God does not resist, but pours His grace out on. We are the people whom God treats not according to justice, but according to mercy. Who He does not repay us what we have given to Him. He repays us with mercy. Amen? Verse 43, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He makes His Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now this one is interesting because all the other quotations that Jesus has of the Old Testament law, you can tie exactly the quotation right back to something that some place or places that the law says exactly that. This one is a little different. The law does say, love your neighbor. It never says anywhere, hate your enemy. But nevertheless, the rabbis taught that that was okay. And what they taught people was this. We are the chosen people of God. We are those whom God has redeemed out of all nations on the earth and we are the selected, special, elect people of God. Therefore, you are to love your neighbor, meaning your fellow Jew. But everybody else, it's okay to hate them. Because God obviously hates them too, because otherwise He would have chosen them along with us. But He didn't. It's okay to hate them. Um, can I just go on record and say that that's not biblical? That was taught, that was believed, that was accepted, but it was never a biblical idea. A lot of, a lot of people, a lot of Christians today sometimes, I think, read whatever translation that appears in. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. That's not in the Bible, no matter what translation you have except as something that Jesus criticizes that is an idea that a lot of people have adopted. A lot of times people mistake the victims of the enemy as the enemy. Amen? The people out there in the world, the people who are opposed to you and me as a believer in Jesus Christ are not our enemies. They are the victims of the enemy. And they need Jesus. And to the extent that we respond as Jesus calls us to here in these verses, 
to that extent they will see and wonder and hear and listen what we have to say. Because if you want to stick out as a believer in Jesus Christ, try love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you on Versailles. That the very people who are taking you to court, the very people who are standing against and yelling at you about everything that you believe to be true and everything the Scripture holds dear, that you nevertheless say, you know, I'm sorry you feel that way. I'll pray for you. I love you. And you back it up with your actions of sincere love and care for them and a clear presentation of the gospel that that will open the door for. I don't think there's really a lot of need to explain Jesus' statements here because he's, I don't think he's in any way unclear. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. If you do those things, you will be like God who does good to all kinds of people, both the people who love him and the people who hate him. And you will get a reward in heaven if you love your enemies, but not... If you only love the people who love you. Why? Because even the worst of people love the people who love them. Right? If you were a Jew, one of the, you know, the lowest life form on earth was a tax collector. Because they were the bag man for the oppressor. And Jesus says, even the tax collectors whom you hate most of all. love people who love them. Even Gentiles, even people who are not part of the covenant people of God, love people who love them. But God extends His love to people who hate Him and want nothing to do with Him. Amen? And this is, this is hard stuff really digest and to grow into but remember that Jesus is not some sort of like armchair philosopher who is telling us in theory how we ought to live it live life right remember this beginning of Jesus ministry he goes to his hometown shares with them about the kingdom of God what do they do they take him out to the edge of town to a cliff and try to throw him off. More than once, the Jews pick up stones to stone him. As he's teaching, the religious leaders start gathering rocks and sizing Jesus up with them. He says, I've done all kinds of good things. For which of these do you stone me? And they say, not for any of those things, but because you, being a mere man, claim to be God. And yet he continued to teach and to heal and to cast out demons and to raise the dead among the very people who tried to put him to death. And then when the plot was on and it was God's perfect timing for Jesus to die, he did in fact get arrested. Remember, Peter pulls his sword out. He's going to defend Jesus. I'm with you, Jesus, all the way to the end. Pulls his sword out, tries to do the, you know, the giant watermelon split maneuver on the top of this guy's head misses hits his ear chops it off whack and 
Jesus says, Peter, put it away. If I need defending, I can call 12 legions of angels. In other words, Peter, I don't need you to take care of me. And he heals the guy who is coming with the cuffs. And when they whip him and beat him and mock him and crown him with thorns and nail him to a cross, he prays, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. They do not know what they are doing. That is the life Jesus calls us to. The life of self-sacrificial love. The life of mercy and grace triumphing over rights and justice. The life of refusing to pay evil with evil, but overcoming evil with good. I, I want you to know right here, right now, that there is no way that I can do that. And there is no way that you are going to do that either. Except by the grace and mercy and empowerment of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It is not going to happen. That is a pair of big boy pants I cannot fit into. And neither can you. We're going to have to mature a whole lot in order to live a life like this. And yet... Jesus, in His grace, sends us the Holy Spirit to empower and enable and equip and to fill us with His presence and His power so that we are enabled to do that which on our own, there ain't no way. Understand? How you doing today? Are you telling yourself, I hope you are, I like the pain. I like the pain. <laughs> right? Because if the Spirit of God is gouging on you a little bit, means that you are healing instead of dying, and alive instead of dead. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we need you. We need you more than ever. Because if we are to in every way grow up into Him, who is the measure and who in whom all of the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Father, we are going to need a massive amount of help because everything in us rebels against doing what Jesus calls us to do here. Everything in our natural responses and in our sense of justice says, if someone does to me, I want to do back to them and even more. And yet you call us not to retaliate, not to seek justice, but to seek their good and to give mercy and to give grace because then we will be like you, the dispenser of grace to those who deeply need it and we will be sons of our Father in heaven. Father, I pray that we would indeed be your children. That we would be the dispensers of grace, even to those who hate us and oppose us in every way. That we would be 
scent of grace, the aroma of mercy, that grace and mercy might triumph over judgment and that we might open opportunities for the gospel to tell people who cannot understand what we're doing why. And that the reason is that Jesus Christ has changed my heart and changed my life and I don't need justice in this world. What I need is mercy and so do you. Father, we thank you for your great grace and mercy to us. May we extend it to everyone we meet, even to our enemies. In Jesus' name, amen.